Welcome to the Eucharist Podcast with Wyoming Catholic College, responding to the call for Eucharistic renewal by sharing wisdom in God's country. I'm Jeremy Holmes, Academic Dean at Wyoming Catholic College. And I'm Kyle Washett, its President, and welcome to this episode. I am here today with Kyle Washett and Paul Jernberg, uh, the Executive Director of the Magnificat Institute, uh, who is also our a very own composer in residence and director of music who uh, brings music to all things across the campus and, and a great joy to, to all concerned. We asked Paul to join us this afternoon uh, to take a very different angle on the Eucharist. We, we think of the Eucharist um, as, uh, of course, what it is, a, a visual sign uh, and, and sacrament, but... Um, there is also a what you might call a sonic component to this, and we wanted to to ask Paul to speak with us today about the about how music relates to the Eucharist, and uh, perhaps we could start with more generally how music relates to to our liturgies, to to our worship, right? Well, you know. Music has been part of the liturgy and of the Eucharistic liturgy ever since the upper room and Christ and the apostles. As faithful Jews in the first century, they would have chanted the liturgy in the upper room. And then... Believe man whose gospel even said it. That's right. They sang a, they sang the, a hymn right. before they went out. Right. But it... It's not just the hymn afterwards. It's also the liturgy itself. The, the, or the, 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 the uh, Passover meal would have been chanted. And now, of course, the, the institution of the Eucharist itself is something new with Christ. So we can't say with 100% scholarly accuracy or, or uh, assurance that that was sung, but it seems very likely that it would have been as well. And the other uh, factor that seems to point to this is the fact that in all of the 23 rites of the Catholic Church, all of these, all of the churches who trace their history back to the apostles and their successors, every one of them has an ancient tradition of chanting the liturgy as being integral to the liturgy. So whatever happened in the upper room, we know that the resulting fruit of that was a sung liturgy. And and so today's uh, Catholics, you know, here where we are in the United States, um, in their day-to-day experience might find this a very surprising thing because our day-to-day experience would be of simply a spoken mass right right but um but you're saying that the uh the actual default for over the millennia was not spoken but sung that's correct yeah and there was and, and there had to be an evolution toward the spoken mass out of the sung default that's right um, and we don't know if there were there might have been situations where uh believers were being persecuted in which they were obliged to be more quiet. And I suppose that's a possibility. But in the, the big picture, we know that the, uh, the the tradition was to sing and is still in many of the rites is that is the default. Uh, 
And I, I, I was going to just throw out, I think at some level, uh, there, there's particular theological things that we're going to want to delve into. But I think it's just also worth noting that for huge swaths of culture, if you have a celebration, of course you're going to be singing. And so if there's you know, a party, if there's a feast, of course you're going to spend some time singing. So already in modern American culture, the sort of dissociation of festival and ourselves singing is a strange thing. Mm -hmm. Right. We live in a culture today where singing is perhaps something predominantly done by a few high-profile stars, uh, not something that we're doing every day in our families, in our homes. Uh, and so the, uh, the singing is not only more divorced from worship than than was it the case in the past, but just more divorced from life. Right. So that there's a way in which we don't feel the absence of song at liturgy the way we, I think, probably most other eras and even other cultures in the world would feel it. Uh, Father Godfrey, our Nigerian chaplain, I think even feels it. He starts saying words and he sort of starts moving into some kind of a chant yeah. because that's just what you do. And so I just want to note that this, right. this important theological reality of singing the Mass is rooted in this fundamental human reality of just singing is somehow how humans that's right. culminate the really important emotions in their life. That's right. And I think it's an important uh, a part also of worship in the sense that we're, we're commanded and we're called to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And singing allows us to do that in worship in a way that we, in a way that is more full and more complete than if we were simply to say words. It allows us, you know, as St. Augustine says, you know, singing belongs to those who love. And uh, that's, if when we love, when we're expressing our love, if, if we can't do it in uh, words, if we can't do it in music, there's, there's something that is somehow lacking in our worship. So that's... Um, yeah, and the experience of singing, as opposed to simply speaking, is, is one at which you sort of, you're giving your all... Right, words yeah. can be something. It's almost like they're they're sort of on a platter, and I hand you the platter here. My words, right. uh, they could be a little bit more separate from me. But the the singing, well, if it's good singing, it's going to come from my whole body. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's and it's a very interesting thing too, because on the one hand, it's for each individual, it's important, and it, you might say for every community, it's important that we're able to express ourselves, express our love through song. From another angle. It's also important for those who are listening and for those who are coming from the outside as a beautiful testimony, a beautiful witness to the truth of the faith as well. So you have St. Augustine when he, is, you know, when he was first uh, converted. A big part of his conversion was hearing the singing in Milan. Uh, and, and, and so there's this, there's this aspect of beauty also that has developed and has become is very important in terms of communing, communicating the, the, the depth and, and beauty and glory of our faith and of Christ to others who are listening. Yeah, then it, uh, Augustine describes how the, the Eastern practice of, of singing hymns and songs in it 
in addition to the Psalter, had spread to the West through Ambrose, right? Just just recently, mm-hmm. and of course Ambrose was was uh, on the spot for Augustine's uh, movement into Christianity, mm-hmm. and he describes just how he how he wept openly, uh, hearing hearing the faith expressed this way. You know, just another more recent anecdote in that regard as well. I was just reading about Paul Claudel in France, and his own conversion apparently was when he walked into Notre, Notre Dame in Paris and, and heard the Vespers being sung. And he, and he pinpointed actually at the Magnificat. As the Magnificat was being sung, the light shone in his heart. It was something about the way in the, which the music was sung that just spoke to him of the truth of the faith. Or Origen has a line where in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he, has, he goes on, on this long excursus writing beautiful things about God. And he says, well, now you might feel like this is just devolved from a treatise into a, a song of praise. And he says, but in reality, that's just what theology is. That, that, that for him, if the Christian life was deeply thinking about the mysteries of Revelation, the culmination of that deeply thinking about the mysteries of Revelation was this singing of it which has this evangelical, attractive, yeah. transformative aspect. So that at some level, everything we're doing in the podcast, everything we do in our life, ultimately is ordered to this experience of singing before the Eucharistic Lord. And that's, mm-hmm. even for origin, even the Eucharist was not just the word Thanksgiving, but also even implying a song of Thanksgiving. That's mm-hmm. what you did. Very interesting. Yeah, and this this everything we've been saying ties into uh, what is um, what is said in the document of the Second Vatican Council, Sacer Sanctum Concilium. That uh, this is kind of an astonishing statement, right? They say that that of all the church's artwork that she's accumulated over the centuries, the absolute most important treasury of art is music. More important than, than, than all the paintings of Raphael and Michelangelo right. and you know all the statuary and all the architecture, right? This is it. This is the most important. And the reason they give uh, is what you've been saying, that um, the music is not something that's sort of around the liturgical action, but the music is integrally part of the liturgical action. It is the celebration. Yes. Um, and th- this is sort of, again, striking given our experience, uh, very often in our parishes, um, music is a, perhaps a, a wonderful hymn, which is all, you know, a beautiful part of our patrimony, but it's a, a hymn that's sort of before and after the mass. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, it, it, but in the document, it's documents of Vatican II, we see, we see the statement that the music is the very mass itself. Right. It's the it's the the words or the sacred text of the liturgy being sung, and this is something that we've often lost sight of. Is that we we the word sacred or the the term sacred music for many people has come to mean a very very broad thing, encompassing all sorts of instrumental music and and contemporary hymns and old hymns and all sorts of things. But the, the traditional meaning of that term sacred music up to the 20th century was well into the 20th century 
was that this is music consecrated, sacred being a past participle meaning it's being consecrated for to clothe the texts of the liturgy. So we have the and there we have the ordinary of the mass, which is the, you know the things we sing every at every mass or every Sunday at least. The the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, the glory, Gloria, glory to God, etc. Um, these things we sing every week. This, this is the ordinary, and then the propers of each mass are are texts that that change from Sunday to Sunday and from feast to feast, and these are also beautiful texts that often have been just uh, lost sight of these days, uh, and and through s- singing these texts on a regular basis, what we find is we become immersed in the riches of Scripture. Because they're they're almost almost all directly from the scripture, and many of them, uh, most of them also are in the form of antiphons with verses. But antiphons, which are are sung, uh, uh, a succinct text that has great power and meaning to it, that we sing and we sing it again and we sing it again, and there's verses, and and this is a we might say it's a way of le- a kind of lexio divina, in that we're able to enter more and more deeply. Into into the the texts through these proper um, propers that belong to each mass. Yeah, and, and this suggests that sacred music has a different relationship to words than many other kinds of music, right? The, right. Um, uh, whether it be um, popular hymns or uh, just the latest popular song on the radio, we're, we're very familiar with the the sort of structure of verses and refrains. And uh, and there's a sort of mul- a musical structure into which many different sets of words are fit, mm-hmm. um, sort of interchangeably. But here we, we're talking about a music that came into being at the service, not just of words broadly, but of these particular words. That's clear. They're meant to clothe only. It's not a jacket that any words could wear. It, it, it's to clothe these words. That's right. And that seems to say something about what what the music will be like. What are what are some of the qualities of sacred music? Right. Well, uh, Pius the tenth back in 1903 wrote a motu proprio entitled Trale Solicitudini, and this and he wasn't inventing anything. He but what he was doing was looking back on the tradition of sacred music east and west, and and articulating what are the ba- the most fundamental principles of this music. And so he, he described three qualities, and each of these qualities actually is like a deep well because you, it's, they're not simplistic, but they're very rich in meaning. The first one is what he calls sanctity or holiness. And we can see there that, there's, that when you hear this music, you should know where, you're, where you are and what you're meant to be doing. <laughs> so it was in a concert. Am I at right, home? right, right, right? Am right. I at church? This, this should. That's be right. A question. That's right. You know where you are. That's right. So it, we we might say it also. Some people call that having a sacred quality. Although sometimes the word sacred can have a lot of different meanings as well as we we said. But right, the music should have this sense of of being clearly where we're at, and somehow drawing us into the prayer of the liturgy. So in in a in a reverent way. So that, that's the first quality is holiness or sanctity. The second quality is literally goodness of forms. 
by which he himself at times translated as beauty. Um, the, it's bonitate uh, formarum. So, so this means, and what, what Pius X says here is that it needs to be true art. It needs to be composed well, and it needs to be sung well. So that when people hear it, when people sing it, they're edified by its beauty and by its goodness, rather than being distracted by its ugliness or its uh, poor performance or its poor composition. Yeah, and, and that word distraction is very helpful, right? Because that, that, that implies that sacred music is, um, while it's, it's clothing the words of the liturgy and, and uh, delivering those words to us in a more powerful way, it's continually getting out of the way of those words. You, yeah. you don't stop and, and, and think about the music itself apart from the words. That's right. Until it's done badly. And then you say, oh, <laughs> oh wow, they really love yeah. that music. Right, so, right, right. So we have to give our all to God in this situation. That's right. Right. The, That's right. The, we're we're offering a sacrifice of praise, and just as you wouldn't bring a a blemished animal into the into the tabernacle, you right. you have to bring your best. That's right. With music. That's right. And um, so so then the third quality he names is universality, and and he uh, describes that as being to he he says that. Wherever this music is sung, there, he said there'll be a legitimate diversity of cultures that have different kinds of music, but that anybody who walks into a liturgy and hears this music will have some sense of connection and and uh, edification, you might say, that, there, that, that there's clearly a sense that this is not secular music or that it's not... Uh, it's it's not outside this of the sphere of the sacred, and that that it has a power, you might say, to draw us into the liturgy and to unite people in that liturgy. So, 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 the, so that you're saying that the Augustine experience walking into the Cathedral of Milan, yeah. if this is going to be a mark of sacred music, you don't have to be an expert musical theorist that you are appreciating it in this sort of abstract exactly. way, or you don't have to have been enculturated for so many years to be able to understand why this weird sound is actually okay. There's something universally evangelical Thank about you. it. Yes, that is very well put. That's very... <laughs> and this, so so composers, for example, we need to be aware of... We, we need to make sure that we're, we're composing in a way that, you know, that's faithful to these qualities... But also that you know that that we're we are not going over the heads of the the ordinary person of goodwill, right? Um, it doesn't mean it should be simplistic, or uh, but there there should be depth and beauty in all of your music. But yes, exactly what you're saying. It needs to be able to touch people from all sorts of different backgrounds and levels of mus- musicianship. And just from there, could you just uh, maybe? Finish this out by saying a word about your own work. Uh, you you have tried to embody all these qualities in yes. your work as a composer, yes. and our our whole conversation perhaps could just be replaced by sending people to listen to one of your <laughs> compositions. Uh, but t- tell us just a little bit about the goal of your own work as a composer. Right. Well, my own work uh, began really with the discovery or my work my work in uh, composition of sacred music really began in Sweden. I lived in Sweden for about 10 years. That's, that's where I came into the Catholic Church. I discovered the Catholic faith. And, and um, I lived close to a Franciscan monastery 
near Gothenburg, where they actually chanted all of the, the, the divine office and the mass. And that was a transformative experience for me because I, as I'd been a musician for a long time before that and done all sorts of music, but I discovered this gift that we're talking about. Uh, it's a genius of sorts. So anyway, that, that set me on a certain track. And then coming back to the States, uh, I had a real sense of, of desi deep desire to share this gift. And, and, but what I encountered as I worked in different parishes, um, that it was often a, a foreign, uh, Gregorian chant, for example, was, was so alien from most people's experience. So then the question is, well, is the only way forward to sort of just keep trying to feed this this, this traditional repertoire, or is there a way in which we can build a bridge, a, a bridge from the, our great tradition with people, real people today? And that's really what draw out my, my compositional work uh, beginning in the mid-90s. And so uh, eventually did lots of composition, especially when we lived in Massachusetts for almost 30 years, and uh, a lot of my work was at St. John's uh, Parish in Clinton, Massachusetts, writing music for the liturgy there. And then uh, eventually having the opportunity when we had the, the uh, new translation of the Missal in 2011, that uh, this was a real stimulus to me to, to write a new mass setting of the ordinary for our parishioners at St. John's and elsewhere. And also it was, it was a, a, a sense of deep urgency that, there, that the liturgy could be presented to people in a way, in both people in the pews and outsiders, in a way that would reflect its great depth and truth, its truth and its glory. And, and you know, when you hear music, as a musician, if you hear music that maybe doesn't quite do that, it's very disturbing. Because I, I've discovered this, this, great, this pearl of great price. I want to share it with others. And if the music is somehow getting, really getting in the way of that, it was a sense of urgency. But, you know, that's not en it's not enough to feel the urgency. There had, so um, for me, uh, starting to compose, was, it's a real strong sense of, of it being a gift. And, you know, of course... Daring to start and write out and write, you know, play with possibilities, and then discovering, whoa, there's something, there's some um, inspiration here, and it's, it's something that I need to connect with. And then, little by little, I became more and more involved in composing, both for the ordinary of the mass and for the propers. Um, people can hear lots of my work on on our web on one of our websites, which is pauljernberg.com. Uh, lots of music there. I've composed the Mass of St. Philip Neri, which is uh, now being sung in lots of parishes. Uh, I've, right now, um, well, recently I've, I've composed a Mass for Persecuted Christians, which we, we, we performed, perform in, in, in quotation marks, you might say. We sang it in the Mass with a wonderful choir. That was uh, that was recorded and filmed, and it's found on on YouTube as uh, Mass for Persecuted Christians. Theirs is the Kingdom of Heaven. Great. Well, we're going to. Uh, well, well, I was going to say, just I want to make one note. If I just correct slightly what Jeremy said, 
by all means, go listen to the music that Paul's composed online. Listen to the music. But based on our earlier conversation, that's not really where it should stop. Come out, visit Wyoming Catholic College, get the sheet music, and sing it yourself. Sing it in your parish. It's accessible. It's beautiful. It's transformative. Thank you for listening to the Eucharistic Podcast at Wyoming Catholic College. To learn more about Wyoming Catholic College, visit wyomingcatholic.edu.